0: Imagine not knowing what your income would be each week. Financial planning would be a nightmare. Almost 90% of Vision's income is free will donations. When supporters commit to monthly giving, it provides greater certainty when budgeting for regular expenses and weighing up new opportunities that arise. Knowing we can rely on regular gifts each month takes some of the guesswork out of operating a faith ministry monthly givers who share our mission are called visionary extra mile partners and right now you're invited to join this growing group of faithful supporters the amount of your tax-deductible monthly gift is completely up to you what is most important is knowing that you are standing with us to reach australia for the gospel click the banner at vision.org.au or in the vision app to find out more about becoming a visionary extra mile partner It only takes a few minutes, but will have an eternal impact. Vision. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. A significant voice in the Evangelical Church in Britain is William Taylor, the Rector of the renowned St. Helens Bishopsgate in central London. As part of our special Christmas Eve program, William is helping us take a look afresh at the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus through the eyes of the Gospel writer Luke. He's chatting to Lee Hatcher and we begin the conversation as William gives us an insight into him and his ministry by answering Lee's question, how old is St. Helen's Bishopsgate? well there's a certain amount of debate about that
1: it's, it's either 12th or 13th century so things get a little bit <laughs> hazy when you get back there it's very old yeah it's old enough what were its origins well actually there was a church on the site of St Helens in Roman time so when they wow. reordered the church after it was bombed in the 1990s they dug down and they discovered um, you know a Roman road under St Helens and the relics of sort of an old church that was there then it was a nunnery and a parish church and then it developed and once stage. Of the parish church and the nunnery next to
2: it, but it's all history. <laughs> Although to a country like Australia, what a grand tradition, but also a great tradition of Christian preaching and teaching and very strategically positioned in London.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we're next to, if you ever see a skyscape of London, we're right next to, or should I say the gherkin is right next to us. The building is the building. But what we're really interested in is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the church living and active as we teach Jesus
2: and introduce people to the Lord Jesus. You yourself grew up on a farm in Cornwall. You served in the British Army. I read one article on you that described you as a tall, dashing fellow, as indeed you are. Why trade the British Army for ministry?
1: Well, I grew up in a home that was Christian, but in a very traditional way, and I don't think I really got clear on the gospel till I was about eighteen or nineteen. And it was only then that I realized that at the heart of Christianity was Jesus. Gradually over a period of Christian growth, after five or six years it became clear that I was able to teach the Bible. And I was in the army at the time, and increasingly people asked me to teach the Bible, and I was meant to be training soldiers and so on, and it
2: became clearer and clearer that it would be better to spend my life doing what I'm doing now. You've taken a great interest in the Gospel writer Luke. Give us a picture of who Luke is and why he set about this considerably weighty task of Reporting, writing about Jesus.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Luke, I take it is what Paul calls the beloved physician in Colossians chapter four. So he was an educated man, a doctor, uh, and I think that's very helpful because uh, we know that we're dealing with somebody who was a, who was educated, a thinker, a doctor, and uh, he went about to write his gospel. He tells us in chapter one. It's it's lovely in the gospel you've got this introduction that he's written having researched carefully so with the eyewitnesses and I call Luke an investigative historian uh, as he goes around talking to the eyewitnesses and investigating what actually happens and then recording their testimony so that we can have clarity or as he says certainty concerning the things that you've heard about so that's his aim But the gospel ends with Jesus saying, this good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations. So I don't think his aim is simply that we have certainty. I think his aim is that we have certainty so that we take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So he's got a very
2: specific aim in writing. Here's a critical question, though. Why should we trust that this is a credible document as it was compiled, transmitted, translated? Through the centuries to today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, there are two parts of uh, that question, really. Is um, what Luke wrote what actually happened? Yeah. And is what Luke wrote what we've got? And so if I take it in two parts, the first part is what Luke wrote, what actually happened. He tells us in verses 1 to 4 in the introduction that he has uh, spoken to the eyewitnesses. And actually he uses there a technical term, servants of the word, people who had been deliberately set apart to be the authoritative witnesses and servants of the word. And then later in the gospel, in chapter 6, you see Jesus call the apostles and set them apart. And then right at the end of the gospel, in chapter 24, we find Jesus saying to his apostles, you are witnesses of these things. So you can see, bookending the gospel with the individuals uh, named right in the middle. Luke has spoken to people who were actually there, and it reads like a lot an eyewitness account. Yes. I love it. The yes. kind of, I would encourage the listeners
2: to read it. It would be a great uh, project to set yourself to read Luke's gospel, even I mean, just some of the detail that we ah. don't necessarily need to have. Oh,
1: brilliant! I mean, in the, in the opening three chapters, each chapter begins by setting the gospel in its historical context. So you've got in the days of Herod in chapter one, and then you've got when Tiberius Caesar was, and we know that Tiberius Caesar was. So, so it's, it's recorded as an historical piece of work, and it's written like first century history. So, um, you know, the boffins tell us that, you know, if you were to read Tacitus or if you were to read Polybius, they operate with a very similar, when they're writing history, a very similar, you have to speak to eyewitnesses. And Luke is clearly, as an educated doctor, setting out to write a piece of
2: history for us so that's the is what we've got what he wrote side of things yes can you give us a sketch of the world and the community into which he was writing
1: well, I think the best place to go for that is the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke travelled with the Apostle Paul. He wrote the Acts as well as Luke, two-volume work. There are certain parts of the Acts of Apostles where Luke says, we this and we that. So he was clearly there with the Apostle Paul. So the world in which he he was writing, I think he was writing having met people like the religious authorities like the pharisees of the day who were deeply hostile to the gospel Uh, so he was writing into that context he was writing having been with paul when he met the magistrates and the emperor so the establishment and then business communities that reacted against the gospel took paul to the marketplace and threw him out of the city and i think luke is writing an account to give us confidence of the gospel in the face of a hostile establishment both religious and political and economic and that makes it, in my view, a highly contemporary piece of work, certainly in England where we find, the, we find the establishment you know, actually hostile. Sometimes it can be the religious establishment, sometimes it can be the political and economic establishment against the Gospel.
2: Are there significant ways in which Luke's version of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection differ from the other Gospels? I think there are some emphases that he wants to push. My view
1: is that when he records Towards the Pharisees, it's very easy for a preacher, because he wants to find points of contact, to make a congregation of Christian listeners think that the Pharisees are us. And we're all Pharisees. We all leave church beating (laughs) ourselves over the back. Now, there are inevitably Pharisaical elements in all of us. But the Pharisees actually sought to kill Jesus. There aren't many people in the St. Helens congregation week by week. Who are wanting to put Jesus to death now I think the Pharisees for example are recorded in order to show us that a religious establishment a political establishment dead set against Jesus looks like this mm-hmm. and they were wrong in putting him to death so Luke records a lot of the Pharisee material in order to give us confidence in the face of the kind of opposition we face from a religious political establishment and um Uh, That doesn't make it different to the other Gospels It's just there's I think quite a lot more
2: Of that in Luke than you find Are there issues or aspects of Jesus' life That he particularly emphasizes In Luke Jesus is presented as saviour very
1: powerfully in Luke. So you remember the angels right at the beginning, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And Zechariah in the temple, my eyes have seen your salvation. In famous Christmas readings, all the way through the gospel, you find Jesus presented as the saviour of the world. The son of man came to seek and save the lost, for example, is his great mission statement in chapter 19. So that aspect of Jesus's mission and also the scope of the salvation the breadth of it so you have um, you know the wealthy stinking rich tax collector Zacchaeus you know who is saved and then you have the sinful woman who
2: is saved and you say well there's a great breadth of salvation that you find in Luke it's a beautiful wonderful story he does offer more details about the young Jesus than some of the other gospels why do you think that is and what are we to gain
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all the birth narrative is wonderful, isn't it? It shows us the history of it. And I, again, I would encourage people to read the birth narrative. Over, It's one of the things our family do. We usually will try anyway through you know right through the year on a regular basis to be reading something but we usually go to the early chapters of the gospels at christmas and read it together on our christmas holidays it's a lovely thing to do but one of luke's aims i think up front in those first three chapters is to give us if you like jesus's cv i mean it sounds a little bit of a strange way of putting it but you have jesus you have john the baptist and you have jesus and you have jesus and you have john the baptist you see jesus's genealogy and i think all that material about the young jesus is to give us his background and his credentials, if you like. And interestingly, the young Jesus is presented in very similar ways to the way we find Samuel presented in uh, in 1 Samuel. And I think you know, here's a time where we're waiting for a king, and here we have God breaking in, in the most extraordinary circumstance, unexpected, and so
2: on. And so. it's significant to keep on remembering this is a significant work of documenting history. Luke is no fool in the way he goes about this task.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and he tells us again in verse verse four of chapter one that he's writing a written and ordered account. And the order is beautiful. Yes. The way he's written and the way he divides up his material and presents it so logically as you move from one step to the next to the next, Jesus is Saviour of the world. It's
2: absolutely glorious. What does Luke detail about what Jesus says about himself? Which I think as a reporter is a very critical thing to well, look at.
1: Yeah, the question is where do you where do you begin and how yeah. long have we got? It's but a lot. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it is a huge amount. I mean, from his first public statement in Galilee, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He goes to that key verse, Isaiah sixty one verse one which is at the centre point of the final section of the prophet Isaiah and speaks of the Messiah conqueror king. And then he says, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I mean, if you'd been in the synagogue that day, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck would have been standing up on it. It's a massive claim of this carpet and from Nazareth, you know.
2: Or, or if you were one of the Pharisees or the religious
1: people, Precisely. you'd be furious, and as that, they were. And here's another thing Jesus says. So when you come to chapter 5, Jesus throws down the gauntlet by cleansing a leper, sending him off to the priests for proof. Next verse all the pharisees from judea jerusalem all of galilee gathered and then you have the healing of the paralytic so it is a theological symposium of all the bigwigs the archbishop of canterbury the archbishop of sydney i mean they were all there and then (laughs) a man comes down through the roof and jesus says that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins I say to you, get up and walk. Now, that's the comment about himself in the face of of the Pharisees. And that little period ends in them discussing what they might do to Jesus. In other words, they decide to kill him. You know, the claims of Jesus are massive. And I love it. The Spirit of the Lord is to announce good news. He is Lord and King. He has all authority on the earth to forgive sins. That's why he's broken in. That's what Christmas is all about. He's come in that we might have peace on earth in heaven between god and man and again in luke's gospel he often talks about peace you'll hear a lot about peace at christmas but in luke's gospel peace is about having our sins forgiven and being made friends with god because jesus has come in to forgive our sins by dying on the cross that is the heart of the christmas message
2: Is there one particular story in the Gospel of Luke that stands out for you more than most or more than the rest that shines a particular light on Jesus? I want two.
1: Okay. (laughs) May I have two? So demanding. Well, there's Levi. I mean, straight after Jesus says, the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, he comes out of what I think is the synagogue following the healing of the paralytic. And there is Levi and he's a tax collector he's an out and out uh, spiritual rebel wants nothing to do with god and jesus says to this man follow me and there then follows what I call the party that rocked the religious <laughs> yes. because they were furious. <laughs> yes. Levi got all his sin- sinners and the fens and the outcasts and the complete spiritual no-hopers. They all come around for a huge bash. Levi knew how to throw a party yes. and you yes. would have accepted the invitation straight away if Too you'd been wrong. asked. Yep. And the Pharisees are furious. And Jesus then says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, which is just that's, that's how I love that. And then the other story I love, incident is the sinful woman so here is the sinful woman and Jesus says she must have heard the gospel somewhere Jesus is in the Pharisees house and she comes with her jar of ointment you know most precious thing she can find she's realised he has power to forgive sins she breaks the ointment weeps over him and then Jesus says these wonderful words your sins have been forgiven you or her sins have been forgiven her your faith has saved you that's the salvation. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And those words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. They tell us how it is we can have peace with God. As I put my trust in Jesus, your faith has saved you. It's nothing I have to do. She didn't do anything. She was a sinful woman. She was probably a prostitute. She comes up the gravel drive to Simon the Pharisee's house. She'd only been that kind of place for one reason before. And now she comes up with her thanks to Jesus and breaks it on his feet and weeps over him. She is saved by faith. And then he says, go in peace. You're a friend with
2: God. What a story. Mm. There's also, William, a great deal of detail about Jesus' resurrection after his death on the cross in the Gospel. Of Luke. There is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Luke, the historian.
1: Fascinating when you read it, particularly the third account when he's in the upper room. See my hands and feet see it is i myself and he showed them his hands and his feet so here is the eyewitness testimony and you have um three aspects at the end of chapter 23 the dead body of jesus is certainly buried we see him being buried so there's no doubt about his death he was definitely dead and then you have the occupied tomb of jesus was certainly empty and interesting here's a Fascinating thing, Luke records that it's women who went to the tomb yes. first. Now, in the first century, this clearly is not a good thing, but in the first century, a woman's testimony in court didn't stand. If you were making it up, you would never in a million years have had women as your witnesses for the empty tomb. So, the dead body of Jesus is clearly buried, the occupied tomb of Jesus is certainly empty and then the risen body of jesus is definitely physical you remember he eats the piece of fish and ghosts don't leave tooth marks and uh, in that piece of fish there were tooth marks he was definitely physical so right in the middle of that you've got the journey on the road to emmaus remember their eyes were kept from seeing him they couldn't recognize him and then he ate with them he explained the scriptures to them and then their eyes were opened And what I think is happening there, because it doesn't add to the evidence, what is happening there is you've got the evidence and the evidence, the tomb, the death, the physical body. But in the middle, how do you actually come to see it and understand it for yourself? He opened the scriptures to them. So the key to gaining confidence in the risen Jesus is actually going back to your Bible, opening the scriptures, asking Jesus to show you and you'll have your eyes open to
2: see him. William, can I ask you if you ever have doubts about this story of Jesus? Maybe a challenging question to ask, being so kind of professionally committed in your <laughs> job and your right. ministry. But do doubts ever arise in your mind about this? Yeah. I
1: mean, may I refer to the wonderful John Chapman, who is a, a close friend of ours? Yes. Used to come and stay with us, stayed with Dick Lucas as my next door neighbor, and would, you know, I've known him for years and years. And Chapo used to say, he used to tell the story of, you know, if ever I doubt, um, and of course, we all Christians, from time to time, you know, for one reason or another, and there are lots of different reasons why we can end up having doubts. Uh, Chapo used to say, you know, if ever I have doubts, um, I'll wake up in the morning and say, did something happen overnight? some new revelation that enables you to know that jesus wasn't born in in nazareth on whatever date it was and no chapo no no no. <laughs> so is there some new sort of historical thing that has arrived to tell you that jesus didn't live and it didn't wasn't crucified didn't raise and then he say well well wake up chapo get on and say your prayers you lazy coot or something <laughs> like that and i think yeah. that's the key so we all have doubts from time to time But then we need to go back to the scriptures and back to our Christian friends who will strengthen and encourage us. And it's as we then come back to the facts and the truth of the gospel
2: that our dance will be reassured. And back to books like this, knowing that this was a serious undertaking yep. yeah, of yeah, recording right. history. Yes. yes. Yeah. So what happens in the Taylor family at Christmas time? What are the ways in which you guys keep yourself and at St Helens Bishop's Gate? Keep your eyes on the reason for the season. I'm afraid I am a hopeless child when it comes to Christmas. I <laughs> oh, yes, love yes, Christmas. Yes, me too.
1: And uh you know, Father Christmas still comes <laughs> to our house, I'm afraid, and all that sort of stuff. So we you know we We don't we don't get start getting ready until quite late in the day. So we're I've okay. been to a lot of places out here and in Singapore on the way out here where people have got everything up and ready. Now we're quite late in the day. But I mean we do try and keep and make sure that we keep Jesus central. So I'm not in a very sort of highest way but we do make sure that you know we start the day in prayer together we do try and make sure we read through the nativity account but we also have great fun in fact one of my children claims that he heard father christmas's sledge on the roof as a five year old it was the first thing he said when he woke up as five so we always remember that you know and have these routines about putting the tree up but St Helens is a great place to be at Christmas We have loads loads of carol services and we try and you know thousands of people come through um, which is fantastic, and hear the good news of Jesus, which is absolutely wonderful. But we also try and make sure so the students turn one of our churches into a great sort of winter festival land, and they have a snow machine or something like that. I don't know what they do, but they make the whole
2: place very Christmassy. Great stuff. Can I ask you one final question? For those who are spectators to the Christian faith who'd be listening tonight, what should they consider about the reason for the season and why?
1: Well, I think this key issue of peace with God is right at the heart of it. God loves you so much that he was prepared to send his only son into the world to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven of your sin and your rebellion against God and that you can be friends with God. Now, you say that's too fantastic to believe. Well, go back and look at the evidence and look at what the eyewitnesses saw. And perhaps you might like to go to chapter 24 and the evidence for the resurrection. See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And he took a piece of fish and ate it. Now, Luke was a doctor and he probably wasn't used to dead bodies rising off his Slab. Off his slab. Good, uh, good Th- point. That's right. And therefore, to say, oh, well, first century people, they just believed that sort of thing naturally. Well, no, no doctor in any age has ever believed that sort of thing. So go back and have a look at the evidence. Consider it for yourself, because if the evidence is true, then God loves you so much that he sent his only son into the world to die for you so that you can have peace
2: and be his friend. William Taylor, I'm so pleased you've come in to join us. Thank you so much for taking us through the Gospel of Luke and wish you a great Christmas. Well, thank you very much and happy Christmas to you.
0: Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au